Thank you, Sadie. If you can have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4, that'd be great. As we go through the passage, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, that the word, this word can change life. But Lord, um, we pray that you'll make us, you'll help us to be this fruitful soil, that we may become your disciples and bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The picture is going to come out. I just like to, there are a lot of good graphic designers in our church, and I just like to thank um, Daniel for drawing um, this for us. Anyway, as we start, um, I don't know how you feel about church growing, but church growth makes me slightly nervous. I mean, last week, when, as we were giving communion, I ran out of bread a long time before it ended. Um, and the thing, it's not because I'm worried that we might run out of bread that I'm nervous about church growth, but this parable shows us that the growth in number is actually really deceptive. It can be really deceptive because there are all sorts of people who come into the church. There are all sorts of different soils as people come into the church. And we might think that because we come to church every week, because we sing and because we participate and because maybe we tithe, everything is okay. But what this parable shows us is actually that's not enough. Uh, that there might be, that we need to take another step. That really Jesus, uh, the, the, the goal of Christian ministry isn't church growth, but rather discipleship. People bearing fruit in their lives. And as always, Jesus makes it crystal clear what it takes to be his disciple. And he wants those who are not so serious actually might just to to go home or to turn to him and to cling to him and to find out what it means to be a disciple. Just look at how the story begins in verse 1. How popular Jesus is there. The crowd are gathered around Jesus. They're so large that the only space that he could get is if he gets into a boat. So he gets into a boat. So he puts a distance, a little bit of distance between him and the crowd, and he starts preaching. And he starts telling this parable, which basically says that many people who are with him there might fall away by end. He tells the seed, um, the first is the seed that falls along the path. We're told in verse 4. We're told that in this, uh, that immediately that the birds came and ate up the seed. In verse 15, Jesus explains that this is Satan who takes away the seed that was sown. And Jesus is speaking, of course, about people who are there with him who might reject his word right away. His words will never have a chance to take root in their lives. And he says that this is because, in part, because of the works of Satan. And there are those of you who might be thinking, even today, even right now in this church, who might, who might, who might be saying to yourself, well, believing in Satan, well, that's kind of a naive thing to do, a superstitious thing to do in, in the 21st century. What Jesus says is that if you don't believe in Satan and his works, that you are naive, that the spiritual reality is real, that the spiritual world is real. And I, I'd have to agree that C.S. Lewis, uh, with C.S. Lewis, that the greatest trick that the that, that devil might have pulled is, is to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And then there are those among us who just won't accept the gospel because they're influenced by Satan and the evil one. And it's no wonder Paul says that our struggle is is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the principalities, uh, powers of uh, of this dark world, against the spiritual forces 
in the, in, of evil in the heavenly realm in Ephesians 6.12. But it might not be actually Satan's direct attack, but also all sorts of lies that he's disseminated around the world that pluck the gospel tr- truth away, from, uh, that, that prevent people from, uh, prevent the gospel from getting a fair chance. For example, I think Satan has succeeded in this world um, in disseminating this idea that science and religion are incompatible. So if you believe in science, then you can't believe in God. I think that's a lie that he's pulled. And because of this lie, people don't want to hear the gospel. I think Ryan was like that a while ago. Another lie. A good God does not allow suffering. That's another lie that Satan has pulled in this world. Being a Christian just means being homophobic. I think that's another lie that Satan has pulled. Satan is disseminating all these lies around the world, and he's plucking the word of God away. From being impl- preventing the word of God being, from being implanted into people's hearts. And once again, if you're sitting here with these doubts swirling in your mind, would you consider these words of Jesus? That these thoughts might be that, that words that Satan is whispering into your ears, into the, uh, the ears of this world. Don't be naive. Don't be naive in, in thinking that it's just you. It's your doubts. It's your thoughts. Most likely, however, if you're sitting here in Shatian Anglican Church this morning, that the Word of God actually has had some sort of impact uh, in your life. But that doesn't mean that everything is okay either. Take a look at the second kind of soil. Jesus tells of a rocky place. It's a rocky uh, place at the bottom uh, without much topsoil in verse 5. He says that the word, the, the word sprang up, the plant sprang up quickly. But the soil was shallow, and the roots never grew deep enough. So in verse 16, he explains that these are the people who receive the gospel with joy. But the problem was that they really have not become disciples. Real problem um, with the second kind of people is that they think they are Christians. Their hearts were warmed when they heard the gospel. They received Christianity with open arms. They might even have gone out to tell other people how their lives have changed. But their roots never grew. And if you're worried that you might be one of these people, then I think, well, good. (laughs) Jesus is challenging you to think, am I a real Christian? And this is what happens to them in verse 17. When the trouble or persecution comes... Because of the word, they quickly fall away. If you ask me, why were their discipleship so shallow? These are shallow disciples. Um, I think on a superficial level, it's simple. I mean, the explanation on a superficial level is simple. That they had no room for suffering. They had no room for persecution. It's when these things come, they fall away. I'm afraid that there are people who go to church who proclaim that the gospel is all about health and wealth. That's the prosperity gospel, isn't it? People hear this message and they receive it with joy because, well, of course, it's good news for them. God who promises health and wealth for them. But when they are taken away, then, they question, not themselves, but the gospel, the effectiveness of the gospel message that they had received. 
But I don't think it's a, it, it's just that. I think there's a deeper problem that it points to. It's not just uh, prevalent in the prosperity gospel church, but here in Shatin church it might be as well. The problem, I think, is me-centered, I-centered, self-centered theology. All along, Christianity was about my comfort, my well-being, my purpose, my happiness. This is why there is uh, only uh, so far that I'll go, because if it hurts me, then I won't go any further than that. You see, final authority had never changed for these people. Jesus, remember in the Great Commission, says, go and, and teach people to obey everything that he has commanded us, everything. That Christianity really is about him, about his authority. That we are to be uh, uh, servants, slaves of him. That he should be our master. That Christianity is really about having a relationship with him and doing what he says, living in a way that pleases him. But you see, these people never really considered Jesus as their master, as their Lord. And there's only so far that they'll go with Jesus. It's as far as it is convenient for me. Think about it. There are parts of the Bible that you might disagree with. What do you do when you disagree with that part, those parts of the Bible? Some people say, well, I don't understand why God allows suffering. When it really, the Bible tells us that persecution and suffering is part and parcel of becoming a Christian. Some people do not like what the Bible says about homosexuality. And so they think, well, they, 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 they think it's fine, and so they ignore that part of the Bible. Others believe that hell cannot be a place that God, uh, God created because God is a good God. They ignore that part of the Bible. And you see why their discipleship is shallow. They still are at the center. They still are the arbiter of what's right and wrong, how to live my life. They will go to a certain extent with Jesus, but if there is a challenge, if there is a, there, there, there is a place that they won't go with Jesus, they won't cross those lines because they do not serve Jesus as their master. They have never accepted Christ as their Lord. But you see how that is a ticking time bomb. Sooner or later, suffering will come. Sooner or later, they might face uh, the question of homosexuality face-to-face, maybe because of a family member. Their faith will be challenged um, because uh, their non-Christian friend or grandmother who just died, and they're forced to think about hell and what that means. And their faith will then wither away, scorched away, because they have never really truly been a disciple of Jesus. They never gave their final authority to Jesus, doing um, what he says, believing what he thinks is right for us. The Great Commission says that we have to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching people to obey everything that Christ commanded us. And Christ says all authority of heaven and earth is his, that every nook and cranny of our lives belong to him, that our lives, every part of our life, has to be lived in relationship with him, in the light of his teachings for us. That's discipleship. That's going deeper into Christianity in your life. That's the only way that we'll be able to live our lives, go through the troubles, go through the persecutions 
if we trust him as our Lord and Master. Some of you, I hope, are challenged. But I think there are those of you who might think, well, I know the Bible. I know what he says. I believe in everything that he says. You don't think that uh, you are shallow in this way. And when the storms of life comes, you know where the roots of your faith are. But once again, that doesn't mean that you are out of danger either. Look at the third group of seeds. They fell among the, uh, the thorns in verse 7. These plants grow, but as they grow, they're choked away by the thorns of other uh, plants. And Jesus explains in verses 18 and 19 that these thorns are worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, and desires of other things. And so they bear no fruit because they're choked away by these things. I think Jesus is really talking about practical atheists. They have faith. They come to church. They have the right understanding But their faith makes no difference in how they live Monday through Saturday. There's no fruit because the word that has been planted in their hearts are being constantly choked away Monday through Saturday by other things, worries of this life, deceitfulness, wealth, desires for other things. Just think about those three things that Jesus mentions there, worries of this life. I think this is really talking about the basic necessities of this life, what we will eat, what we will wear, where we will sleep. When I talk to people in Hong Kong, I think this is actually one of the biggest worries that people have. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to sleep? If not for yourself, but for your children. Where will they sleep? What will they eat? Can I pay for their school education? Can I, if they go over, overseas, can I, um, uh, can I pay for that? And how about the flat? I mean, how will they ever afford a flat? Can I, shouldn't I provide for them? And because they're trying so hard to meet those needs, their lives look no different from their non-Christian colleagues Monday through Saturday. How about yours? It might be, it's not the basic necessities of this life that you're worried about. They're already met. You live a comfortable life. But Jesus points to another thing in verse 19, doesn't he? The deceitfulness of wealth. There's a, that's another big thing in Hong Kong, I think. Wealth promising all sorts of things and we, us, being duped by them. Wealth promises all sorts of things like power, control, happiness, self-worth, status, value. But Jesus calls wealth deceitful here because what it promises, it does not give. It promises power and control. For the people who trust in, the, in wealth often lose control and do, uh, 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 are controlled by money. It promises happiness. But there are plenty of unhappy wealthy people around the world. And sociological research uh, shows us that actually when the basic needs are met, actually uh, money, uh, wealth has very little to do with your happiness. Being wealthy might also promise self-worth and value. It might give you that sense of self-importance. But should wealth be the measure of our, our, our success, our value? Are you deceived? By, the, 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 by, by this uh, trick of wealth? Is that what you live for? And isn't that what everybody else lives for in this world? Isn't that what other people outside of these walls live for? 
And I think this is also clarified in verse 19 with the third thing, the desires for other things. And this is a bit of a catch-all that Jesus mentions. But I think it's, it, it's pointing to all these other worldly desires that we have, desires for status, desires for name-brand clothes or uh, bags or cars or gadgets and degrees, vacations. Once again, aren't these things the things that people outside of this church live for? What do you desire? What do you live for? I can't remember who said it, but someone said the conversion isn't just cessation of certain desires, but creation of new desires. New desires forming in your hearts. Do, do you desire to please God? Do you desire to live for Him? Do you desire to seek God's kingdom and God's kingdom first? Do you desire to give up things that you have so that the gospel could be served? Do you desire to live simply so that gospel could flourish? The desire to spend time in the church, reading the Bible, teaching the Bible to others, do you desire those things? And the scary fact is that Jesus, in John 15, says, those who bear no fruit, those branches will be cut off and will be thrown away, that they were never really his disciples. Practical atheism is real. It is real, and it's amongst us. Are lives different from others? Are our desires different? Are we seeking God's kingdom? Finally, there is a five, the fourth and fruitful soil. Some good news, after all. It's simply called good soil in verse 8. It produces crop multiplying 30, 60, 100 times. And Jesus explains in verse 20, these are the people who uh, hear the word, accepted it, and now are bearing fruit. The main difference really here is the fruit. It bears fruit. Um, Character and work that please God. But if you're asking how, how does this happen? Well, I think the key is in the most difficult section of, of this passage, verses 9 through 12. So if you have a Bible, just take a look at that section. It's a very difficult section in some ways. Remember, once again, the context is that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd, adoring crowd. But here, Jesus tells a story that not everyone will understand. He says, he, he tells this story, the, the parable, doesn't explain it, and declares in verse 9, whoever has ears to hear. Uh, ears to hear, let them hear, verse 9, implying that there will be people who will not hear. And we're told uh, in verse 11 that he told his parable, uh, this in a parable form, so that those who are on the outside will be seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding. Is Jesus playing favoritism? Uh, I don't think so. I think what Jesus is really doing is he's extending an invitation to all the crowd that is out there. He's inviting people. He's saying, don't just be an admiring, uh, pers- admiring fan out there. Be my disciple. Come and ask me. Jesus is asking for discipleship to come and investigate what they just heard to have a relationship with him, to remain with him, and to follow him. He's inviting people to become his disciples. But you see what happens. Most people go home puzzled. Not that many people remain. 
We're told in verse 10 that only the 12 disciples and few others around, around them remained. But you see what Jesus does to those who are remaining with him. He teaches them. He teaches them. He explains this parable to them. He disciples them so that they may perceive, that they may understand and receive this forgiveness, that they may grow and bear fruit. That's what Jesus is asking us to do, to come when we hear these things. You see, there are many people here with us in this morning, this morning, who might just be satisfied to coming to church on Sundays. Christianity is part of your life. It's something that you do. But you're done there. Will you inch forward and ask to remain, to, uh, to, to cling to Jesus? Will you become his disciples? You know, by the end of this day, some of us will forget what we've just heard. Some of us will go on throughout this week and maybe for a month, for a while, until trouble and persecution comes. And there are those of you who will go to church all your life, all your life, without bearing any fruit. So my job is to plead with you to listen, to come and listen to Jesus, to inch forward, to remain and ask and investigate, to become his disciples. The thing is, to be realistic, you are not strong enough to resist Satan and his lies by yourself. You're not strong enough to remove the rocks in your heart by yourself. You're not strong enough to resist the thorns around you by yourself. But you can turn to Christ. You can ask God, Lord, I have these lies in my life. Would you remove them? I have these rocks. Um, uh, would you remove them? I have these thorns. Would you please remove them? I want to hear your word. I want to accept your word. I want to think about what you have said and all its implications. I want to, I want to accept your authority in my life and live every part of my life in, in, in praise of you. I want to obey you. I want to seek you. I want you. And if you cling to him, if you plunge into his words and live a life that's dependent on him, you will become disciples. You are his disciples. And it'll start out small. You'll question yourself and go, ah, but nothing is changing in my life. But that's how God's word works. It comes as a seed. It comes as a seed. But it will grow. The kingdom of God works like that. You will grow. You might think there's no change now, but in due season, when the time comes, you will bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times. Let's pray that God, we will do that and we'll be a church that does that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... Thank you that there is power in your word. That though we are weak, you are strong. That as we turn to you, you will explain these things to us. That you'll help us to be your disciples. And Lord, as we cling to you, we pray that we'll be individuals, we'll be a church that bears 30, 60, and 100 times of crop in our lives. That you may be praised through our lives.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.